Welcome to the Mirror Stage podcast, where we explore the Pacific Northwest through the stories and experiences of the people and its communities. I am Kiki, my pronouns are they, them. And I'm Hazel, my pronouns are she, her. And we're just going to start with uh, some things that are new and exciting or not exciting. They don't have to be exciting. But where are we? We're in March. So this is Women's Month currently. And what else has been going on, Hazel? What have you been up to this March? Well, you can't hear it, but I just did a, what are these called? That's Raise the Roof. Raise the Roof for the Women premiere stage it doesn't have to be from your stage it could just be you (laughs) okay let me for listeners who may or may not know I actually relocated back home to Colorado so Kiki and I are as always doing these interviews virtually remotely through zoom um it's starting to warm up over here you know spring is in the air I'm getting real excited about that Nice. I'm just jealous because I'm like, it's not really warming up over here. But maybe by the time this episode airs, it will have warmed up over here. So fingers crossed. So, um, well, now I'm going to ask you if you've seen any shows or anything. And that can be like virtual shows or if you're just watching anything. Because I'll say I saw that Othello Talks presentation, which is something we'll be talking about a little bit in the future for future episodes. But I saw a really good talk by a man named... Dr. Danielson, and he talked a lot about healthcare and in South Seattle, how people are dealing with healthcare and education. But what about you, Hazel? Have you seen anything? I have not, but will be. I do want to watch that, what you just watched, as soon as it's available. Apparently, it'll be on YouTube. We will be sharing that link as well in the future, as soon as we have it. But speaking of shows, okay, twofold. So I was in Hawaii recently. Nobody kill me. You had to test negative to go. It's for my former roommate's birthday. We got to- Hey, sorry, I just wanna say, no one's gonna be mad at you because you're not like a senator for a place that is currently freezing that then left to a warm place. So no one's going to be mad. That was it, I just wanted to say that. Brilliant chime in. Oh my gosh, we are talking about things going on in this country. (laughs) But as you know, we're all like, starving to get back in the room with people to create to return to traditional theater storytelling if you will but um I got to see a show in Hawaii that was it was a cultural story it was a story of a young boy it's about life it's about growing up and oh my gosh I cried it was just so good to see the performers had those clear masks on their face But besides that, it was so beautifully done and like lights and sound and music and fire breathing and fire twirling. It was, it was called, I think it was called Ha, which is breath of life. It was so great. And um, I just, I just cried because I was like, wow, I miss this. This was beautiful. I'm so thankful I got to see that. But also in my hometown, my college that I went to is doing a social distance production of Cabaret. And this is, I feel like a slap on the wrist for me. I'm not super familiar with Cabaret. I've actually never seen a production of it, but their set is, um, they've got all of the different characters in boxes that are, you know, spaced out from the other actors. And then the audience will have to wear masks and will be spread out as well. They have a big enough auditorium to do that, but I'm going to see that tomorrow evening so I'm very excited 
Nice. That is pretty cool. I was going to say, I. it's funny because I am seeing a show tomorrow evening. Technically, it's still all over the internet. So uh, a very good friend of mine, my best friend, is an actor, and she came up with a one-woman show about Clytemnestra and Clytemnestra's story. And it's going to be fun because it is themed like a speed date. So all of the people who are on Zoom are going to be on like a speed date with her for the first part. So they we type in stuff, we interact for a little bit, and then she kind of goes into her story about like, oh, well, here's a little about, bit about me. But I don't know if you know that story. It's a crazy story. I suggest looking it up. <laughs> but it's a fun one. So that'll be fun. I love solo performance. I love my friend Tammy. So I'm excited to do a little do a little theater. That sounds awesome. I hope you'll have some like wine or some popcorn or snacks. That's funny you say that. I asked her, I was like, hey, so I'm going to do like a cocktail hour with my partner. So what would Clive Nestra like us to bring to the cocktail hour? And she was like, martinis. And I was like, well, okay. I was not prepared, but but I'm, I'm here for you. I'm here for you and your cause. <laughs> Vodka or gin? Okay. For me, it would be vodka, but I know that Tammy will be listening to this, and Tammy prefers gin. We get in this conversation all the time, because I'm always like, we're, we're usually drinking either a vodka drink or a gin drink, and I'm just like, I don't, I don't, I don't like the flavor of gin. That's just me. What about you, Hazel? Do you have, do you do gin or vodka? I feel like we're on a serious tangent, and I love it. I love gin. <laughs> I love a good dirty martini. Uh, I'd usually, I'm not too picky about the brands. I haven't developed enough taste of gin to be like, oh yeah, I like aviation better than whatever. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a gin girl. Uh, who's producing? Is it is it self-produced or is there another platform producing this one woman show? I believe it is self-produced. She's producing it with another good friend of ours from college. And so it's just the two of them. And it's great because uh, this was a project that originally started pre-COVID. So they wanted to do something kind of different. And then COVID happened and things got shut down, all that jazz. And so now they're like, okay, how can we develop this and do this online? And it's working really well on the online platform. Right on. I applaud them for soldiering on. Yeah. Well, and speaking of the online platform, another thing that I've been doing and working on is the dramaturgy work for Expand Upon Climate Change which is our, our next big thing, our current big thing that we are working on, because it is a whole process. And we're going to be interviewing our playwrights, the two people who wrote our shows. Julieta Vitulo, Keepers of the River, and I guess I'm the End of My Family Line by Brian Dang. I actually just reread them recently, as in last night and this morning, because I wanted to be abreast when we spoke with them. And wow, I'm just so impressed with their writing and Uh, Like my mind was going like my director brain, my, which I don't really have my acting brain, a stage manager brain. I was just all the imagery that comes with their writing. I was getting so excited. I was like, I hope maybe one day mirror stage can like redo these once we can all be in the space together. Cause I'd love to see them. I'd also love to see them completely realized fully staged lights. You know, I was thinking lights and colors and they just, I feel like they'd be very beautiful plays aesthetically too yes the imagery the imagery in both of those pieces are amazing they're drastically different but also they could be done on a very simplistic scale of like we got black box 
actors, costumes, and like three acting blocks. Or it could be the whole opposite of like, we've built an entire forest <laughs> on this stage. And I, I just think it's, I think it's very beautiful. And one thing I thought was interesting as I've been looking into the dramaturgy work for this, because it's been kind of hard because with the last Expand Upon that was gun control, I feel like that was a little bit easier to nail dramaturgically. I was like, what do people know about gun laws? What don't people know about gun laws? Like that was very cut and dry for me. But as you'll hear everyone talk about later, climate change is a really big topic and there's a lot of things involved in it and there's a lot of directions it can go. And with these pieces being so different from one another, they kind of branch off in their own realms that need their own dramaturgical focus. So it's been hard for me to try to pull back because the nerd in me wants to just look into all of these different historical facts and historical things in Julieta's play and the uh, political realm of things. But I have to go back and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I want to make sure that I'm not drawing focus on just this one thing that I find interesting. I want to make sure that I'm encompassing both of them. And so a big theme that's been coming out is the concept of generations, the concept of humans and how we have had an effect on the climate outside of just the industrial aspect, but, you know, like the development of fire, things like that, and learning from learning from the historical parts of these kinds of things. So that has been interesting and fun. Yeah, I don't envy you the, <laughs> um, just like you said, and, and like the listeners will learn, just the massive scale of all the other things that are interwoven. Uh, you could write a book about, for just expand upon climate change, the mirror stage series that we're doing, dramaturgically, look at all of this stuff. <laughs> so yeah, I'm sure it's like super difficult trying to stay like, what are the most important things to highlight for our audiences this time around on this topic based on the two plays that have been written? Anyway, here is our interview with Brian Ding and Julieta Vitulo. If you're enjoying this podcast and would like to support it and other Mirror Stage programming, you can make a tax-deductible donation via our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. That's 206-888-MIRR. So let us start off. Will y'all introduce yourselves to our listeners? We'll start with Brian. Wow, okay. My name is Brian Dang. I use they them pronouns. And I am a playwright based on Duwamish land or territory, um, also known as Seattle. Thank you. And Julieta. Hi, everyone. My name is Julieta Vitulo. I'm also a playwright uh, based in Duwamish Territory, Seattle, uh, currently in Argentina. That is exciting. I am super looking forward to when you come back and tell us all about it. <laughs> um, well, so we're going to start this by just chatting about origin stories. So what is your origin story? That's just for our group. So whoever feels compelled to speak first, go ahead. I just want to chime in. What is your origin story? We've been asking pretty much everyone we've interviewed that question. And so 
we're leaving the definition up to you, but if you want clarification, we can give you some, but yeah, we've been exploring this concept. And so we're interested to see what your origin story is or what you think that um, is. Yeah, I guess I can start. I would say that I grappled a little bit with this question because I feel like I don't really know myself that well still. I'm still like learning a lot about myself and I still feel like I'm still figuring out what I want to do and um, where I want to go and what I want to become and um, the people that I want to spend my time with. And so I feel like it's still yet to come. But if I did want to start somewhere, um, I would start with my grandma because I feel like the story of me sort of starts way before I was ever born. Um, and that sort of ripples into my life. Um, but she was born in Southern China and then eventually moved to Vietnam and now lives in the US. And so that migration story and all of those details sort of, I'm still untangling those um, and feeling those out. Um, so yeah, I feel like I'm still figuring that out. <laughs> That'll be my final sort of thought. I have a follow-up question because I'm curious. Brian, is your is your grandma in Washington or is your family in Washington? Um, yes, my grandma's in Washington now um, and lives in Linwood. Um, I lived with my grandma for the majority of my life until she moved into my uncle's house. But my family's actually super diasporic right now. Um, like I have family in Vietnam like Canada, um, multiple parts of the US, um, Australia, um, in Hawaii, um, Germany, apparently. Um, and so it has taken me like to a, quite a few places across the world. Um, but we sort of all got displaced very like in wildly different directions. I think it's very interesting. I think this is the first time we've had someone respond to that origin story question with a, they're not really sure. And I just want to applaud you for sharing and saying that because like, you know, we're constantly living, evolving, growing, and, um, you know, there's still time to, to figure that out. And so that's, I just thought that was really cool that you shared that. Yeah. Um, I guess I'll chime in. I, I love that you shared that, Brian. I, um, quite a bit older than you. And I think that I'm still figuring that out. And when I was thinking about this question of origin story, you know, I was thinking there's, there are so many ways in which you can answer that. And because we're talking about playwriting, I thought about, you know, what to say more in terms of my art. Um, so I think the things that are relevant for people to know about me in relation to my art, I was born and raised in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Um, and I was born uh, a month after the last military coup uh, that took the lives of 30,000 people. So I came into the world under that shadow. When I was really young, my parents took me to the city theater. That was one of the very few places where you could see art during the dictatorship because almost everything else was censored. Um, and after democracy was restored, which was when I was six years old, I continued to see um, live theater and music, and especially rock concerts from both local and international bands. And I think that that um, collective experience of seeing art uh, live on a stage made a big impression on me. 
um, from really early on. Um, and another form of public expression that's part of my origin story is the protest. Um, I went to high school and college in the 90s and that at that time students demonstrated um, to defend public education against the neoliberal government that was trying to turn universities into paid institutions in the short term and eventually I, I imagine the plan was to privatize them. But we won that fight. Um, so today you can still go to college in Argentina for free, which is pretty incredible. Um, and you know, to this day, that's it's not a privilege, it's a right. You know, and after I finished college, I uh, received the full right um, to come to the US uh, for my master's. And then I ended up completing a PhD and um, spending many years in academia. Um, and, you know, all of this informs who I am, um, both as a person and as a writer. You know, and eventually I formed a family here in the US. And now I'm getting closer to the point where I will have spent half of my life in this country. Uh, which is uh, hard to believe because I still sometimes feel like I'm a newcomer. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's my story. <laughs> that's part of it. <laughs> yeah, thank you. And so I'm going to ask you the same question. Did you come, this, like, is your family and people that you care about out here in Washington as well? Like, did you come to America to come to do school in Washington? Or did you come somewhere else and then end up in Seattle? Yeah, I actually came first to New Jersey because I went to Rutgers uh, for my master's and I came by myself. So nobody else in my family, uh, in my extended family, came to the U.S. So I have my own family now, the family that I that I created. Um, but all of my family, um, they're all still back in Argentina. And then, I, you know, I went from New Jersey to Washington at some point, like halfway through my time here. First, I went to Oregon and then Washington. So, yeah, I have no family at all in Washington. Julieta, I love how much depth and experience you bring as a, as a human with your trials and tribulations growing up in Argentina. Um, not everyone gets to experience that. And I think that lends a lot of perspective and impact on one's life, obviously that's kind of a duh, but I have kind of a silly follow-up question. I was curious if you had a favorite rock band that you saw while you were <laughs> experiencing concerts as a younger person. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> you know, um, I, got, I got to see a lot of bands. I, I got to go see the Ramon, uh, the Ramones. Is that how you say it? Cause we call them Ramones, but. It's, I got it, it's the Ramones. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I didn't want to mess that up because I really liked them. Um, that was really fun. I got to see Jetro Tool. I don't know if you know that band, uh, but that was one of the best. Um, uh, I think they're Scottish. Um, I got to see Bob Dylan and the Rolling Stones. They weren't my favorite bands, but I, I, sh I thought I should just mention them, <laughs> you know, because they're so big. Um, yeah, and then there's a lot of local bands, like for people who know a little bit of Latin American rock. Um, so Asterio is a big, it was a big band, band in the 90s, and I got to see them several times. Yeah, it was kind of like a glorious epoch. <laughs> That's great. I just wanted to hop in and say I too have seen the Rolling Stones at a very, very young age. My parents took me. Um, but I, I love music, and I'm also really inspired by music. So I feel you on that, like getting that energy from all the different kinds of music that you can see. 
Yeah, totally, totally. And the, the, the collective experience of, um, you know, having the same feeling that so many thousands of people around you and enjoying that it's a very unique experience. Yeah, I just wanted to respond to some of what Julieta was talking about. And it's, I feel like I just really appreciated you talking about that story with your sort of detailing of origin, because I feel like a lot of that shows up in your writing. Um, and the fact that, like, I am so, like, looking and looking into a lot of that history for my own, like, families, countries, and, like, I really don't know that much. Um, and so it's so good to hear that and, like, sort of think about sort of all the ways that, like, my family was, like, moved and then, like, didn't tell me certain things or, like, choose not to. Um, and I feel like that sort of informs my own sort of, like, idea of who I am and not knowing who I am. And so I was just, that was just floating around in my brain. Going off what Brian just said about what informs who you are, what influences your writing, Kiki and I wanted to ask, like, what first inspired you to tell stories through the medium of playwriting? I see we have lost Julieta, so we'll let uh, her come back in. <laughs> so, uh, Brian. <laughs> now I'm curious, Brian, what was the last concert you saw before everything went down? <laughs> I love music. <laughs> Yes, um, it was actually in January, so it wasn't even like I didn't. I had a bunch of concerts lined up, which was so sad. It was like the first year I was like intentionally buying those tickets so much farther in advance. But um, I saw like a newish band called Glass Beach. Okay. And they sort of have like a My Chemical Romance punk vibe. Yes. People started moshing when the beat dropped in the first song and it took me off guard so hard i did not expect that i was like i fear for my life I... you're like we're just gonna immediately stop moshing like immediately okay right. <laughs> it did not stop they really did i also i want to say that i love that you have this whole pot of coffee here <laughs> I've been watching you pour and I'm like I'm so jealous I was sitting in my closet didn't even think to bring anything yeah <laughs> I just brewed it so I was like well uh, what was the last concert that you saw it was uh Cold War Kids and I think it was like around January I love Cold War Kids they're I can't I can't really describe them a lot of a lot of rock there's a lot of guitar and piano that happens nice Julieta, are you back? Yeah, are you good? I'm sorry, you guys. You know what happened? You won't believe it. The power went off. <gasps> oh, no. <gasps> oh, my God. <laughs> so this is such a bad timing. Um, oh, no. So I am on my dad's phone because I don't have uh, internet on my phone. So I'm using his phone. He has data. So this should not be dependent on the power. And... Um, it's dark here, so I'm just gonna keep my camera off anyway, just to save some data uh, or some 
yeah because it, it's dark so yeah yeah <laughs> that's crazy <laughs> oh my gosh yeah. I'm so sorry so, um, you know are you, I can, are you okay you're comfortable yeah continuing? we're good it's just that it's getting dark here it's already seven almost seven thirty. so um it's just gonna be dark but I can see you so as long as we can hear each other I'm so sorry um Brian you were in the middle of saying something uh really interesting so I kind of missed most of uh I, I guess halfway through I got cut off well I can hear you so well great <laughs> so, to let you know so that. bizarre because this has not happened in a long time I don't know why I, the neighbors don't have power either so it must be a neighborhood thing it's really windy today so maybe that's why hmm. it's windy here too in Seattle. oh really oh that's so funny so when you came back in, Julieta, we were actually just continuing to talk about rock bands. Oh, okay. But Brian, if you want to pick up with your response to the question, if you need it again, just let oh, me know. Oh, yes. Got it. So cool. I personally came to playwriting not very intentionally, I would say. I knew I always wanted to be a writer. I shouldn't say always, that's quite the exaggeration. But from a young age, like I started writing comics. Um, that's sort of where I started. And then short stories. And I found myself mostly working through prose. Um, and it never felt really right. Um, I didn't really like feel like I was communicating everything that I wanted to through prose. But then I started um, doing high school theater, um, and that's how I got involved with theater. In the first place, someone like roped me in. I saw The Wizard of Oz and was like, oh, this is super cool. Um, but it wasn't until like my undergrad years where I started writing and I felt such a better sense of community in the writing process than I did in any other type of writing process I ever did, um, where it was like I was spending time with people and making a story. And so that sort of communal aspect of playwriting is what drives me to stay in this form. Um, like, I don't think my writing is complete until like it comes out of people's mouths, essentially. Um, and I find that so compelling to me um, that I have to do it with other people or it doesn't really exist. <laughs> I, yeah, that's why I gravitate towards playwriting. That's a really interesting point you make um, that it's kind of like that accountability factor, you know, with p other people involved, the, the community and the fact that like, I feel like, you know, maybe writing a book is a very solo activity Whereas with the playwriting, you've got to think about all of the other people involved. I think that's really Yeah, neat. that's true because sometimes people think about playwriting as like a solitary thing because if you are one playwright, but it goes through a process of either workshopping or going into a reading or something like that so that it really is a whole ensemble effort. Yeah, I, I agree with Brian on the communal aspect. And it's also for me, what drove me to playwriting and what keeps me in playwriting even during these really difficult times where making theater is not what it used to be, uh, but the communal aspect is still there. And um, it's funny when I was thinking about this question, um, I attended a 
kind of like a workshop the other day about how to find an agent because I'm trying to sell my novel uh, that I've just finished. And they said, you know, you have to write a query letter and make sure that it's very unique and don't say, oh, I have always been a writer. Um, it's funny because that's what I always say. I have always been a writer. <laughs> it's like, that's how I answer this question. You know, I've, I've been writing since I knew how to write. I'm sorry, but that's true. So I know it doesn't sound like a very sellable point, but I like saying it because I think it's, uh, you know, I picked up a pen when I was six years old and started writing. And I actually wrote my first story. I just could not, not write. Um, but I came into playwriting much later in life. And, and it was because of that communal aspect that I felt that I was missing in my in my other writing. You know, I write prose, uh, short stories, and then I started experimenting with other genres like novel and nonfiction, creating nonfiction. But it was also kind of, you know, out of necessity and a little bit by happenstance because I, I was looking for a class. I wanted to do something where I could meet people and share the writing experience. I had been writing in Spanish up to that point, as far as creative, you know, creative writing, it was all in Spanish. Um, so I was looking for a class. And the first thing that popped up when I searched uh, for classes in the Seattle area was freehold. And so it was playwriting. And so when I went to my first playwriting class, I hadn't even thought about what language I was going to use. And I realized, well, I guess I'm going to have to start writing in English. So that's how I came into playwriting. And I first, you know, started writing my place in English and trying that out. And now I'm doing a lot of my other creative writing in English as well. And I kind of go back and forth. But yeah, it's, it's you know, in a way, it's very similar to what Brian said. Is um, It doesn't really manifest itself for me until somebody says those words and uh, that's amazing and I had not experienced that in any other, other form of writing before um, because none of the other forms are collaborative they're kind of the opposite they're super <laughs> solitary um, but I love that about playwriting because it's it's definitely something that um, we build together with a group of people yeah I just wanted to quickly add like this joke that I've had for myself for a while has been like do I like theater or do I like people? And I've never like been able to disentangle the two of those things. I feel like one and the same, really. Um, it's like, <laughs> if you don't like people, why are you in theater? feels like an impossible task. <laughs> um, and it, and sort of jumping off what Julieta was saying and like that collaborative aspect, I like feel like for characters in theater, when you write them, you have to be really intentional in a way that other forms may not have to be because you know someone real with like, who is a whole human is gonna be like putting their body into that character. And that's like not easy and should not be looked lightly upon, so. Yeah. I just wanted to ask Julieta, uh, you mentioned taking your class at Freehold. When was that exactly? That was in 2017, I think. Uh, was it 16 or 17? I think it was 17. Yeah, I took a class with Elizabeth Heffron, uh, Playwriting One, and 
she's the one who told me about Rebecca Turino Collinsworth, who is Parley's artistic director. And for the audience who's listening now, they should know that Brian and I are playwrights in Parley. Um, so we, we know each other quite a bit. Uh, we know each other's writing. Uh, we have attended each other's uh, workshops, you know, I think most of them. Um, we're not in the same group. Uh, they are in, on Monday and I am on Tuesday group. I do have a question about Pilate for people who are not familiar with it. Can you tell us a little more about what it is, how you all work together? I hear that you guys do, like you were saying, you do some workshops of some pieces. I guess I would describe Parley as in sort of playwrights collective where it's the main focus is to be with each other's work from conception to workshop. It's sort of in a continually refreshing sort of cycle as defined by the playwrights themselves. We sort of write on our own schedule and we aim to have a workshop like once a month. It's been different now that we're in a global pandemic, but um, we still have had workshops. Um, and you can actually watch Julieta's workshop um, of Cornelia's visitors on parleyproductions.com that we did over Zoom um, uh, and others that we have done remotely. Um, but we meet weekly, we just read each other's work and talk about it. Um, it's like one of the things I look most forward to in my week. It's just so much fun. Um, and I really feel like everybody cares about each other's work. Um, and yeah, as Julieta mentioned, I'm not on the same, like it's sectioned off into two groups just because for volume sake um, and scheduling, but um, it's, uh, it's a pleasure every time I get to, sometimes I hop over <laughs> and like, um, and talk to Tuesday group and that's always a lot of fun. Yeah, that's that's one of my favorite things that we get to do is when we hop over from Monday to Tuesday, from Tuesday to Monday, because we usually have this process that you know takes quite a long time. We might be sending pieces of a play over the course of a few weeks or a few months. And so people get to see pieces and they get to see it as it comes together. So when we're getting ready to um, put a workshop or send that place somewhere if it's, you know, we're writing for some other company, um, it's nice to cross over to, to the other group and submit the full manuscript to see what they think because we get to not just interact with the people in the Monday group or the Tuesday group. It's like we're really one big family. So there's like 14 of us or something like that. And we have known each other for you know, a few years, those of us who have been there for more than, you know, two or three years. I think, Brian, that's, you've been there for about that long, and so have I. Yes, that's true. Sorry, I just wanted to say that vocally. <laughs> yeah, I've, uh, I have been there for about three years now. My first year was actually as an intern, so <laughs> it was really fun. So I guess our next question for y'all is 
who's your favorite playwright slash inspiration? I want to open that up too, because like if you're like, oh, I don't necessarily have a favorite playwright that I'm inspired by. If there's another writer that you are inspired by or artistic expressionist that you are inspired by. As far as um, inspiration, um, of course, it's really hard to name one playwright or one writer because I think that we are made of everything that we read and that we see and hear and experience. Um, but for me, all the stories I absorbed as I came of age are the stories that are still inspiring me. Right now, I happen to be staying uh, in the house where I spend most of my summers and some winters uh, growing up in a beach town south of Buenos Aires on the Atlantic Ocean. And I'm here, you know, with my family, uh, my extended family. And as a a child, uh, my mom and my siblings, we used to take night walks here in this town. And in order not to be scared, my mom would start singing. Um, and we sang songs by Maria Elena Walsh, who was the most important singer uh, for children of my generation, and I think every, every generation after that in Argentina. And these songs talked about animals and people and trees and objects that, um, that moved and talked and had feelings. And I think all of those elements uh, that were kind of magic and surreal uh, in those songs made a big impression on me and this this place was also the place where I first started reading the big canonical works of Latin American literature uh, writers like Jorge Luis Borges or Gabriel García Márquez and I think that those influences when I was thinking about this question I'm like oh my god it's it's too big so I'm just going to focus on the things that are still with me that I absorbed when I was really young. Because uh, every time I write, I go back there and I go back to this place where I am now. So it's like, I love that I get to do this interview with, this guy, with you guys um, while I'm here because I am surrounded by those inspirations. The songs that I was singing with my mom, the, the books that I read while I was here. And sometimes it would rain and rain and rain so we couldn't go to the beach. So I would just read. Um, so yeah, it's kind of like a place associated with some writers, some, some stories, some, some, some songs and like being able to be unplugged and, you know, there's no TV here at that time, there were no electronic devices, so there were no distractions. So it was like a lot of, um, like having an inner life that was really rich and, developing kind of like an eye to observe um, the world around me. And so I guess all of that way of being, way of existing in, in this world is what inspires me. I hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> no, not at all. I just love the, what's the word I'm looking for? The breadth of what you just covered. but. Um, I also am super inspired by sort of just daily existence and like what it, that sounds too existential for my liking, but um, I like, but also like sort of included in that are my relationships with other people are like deeply inspiring to my art and like 
how I relate to other people and what that means to me and how to express that, obviously. And so it is hard to pinpoint direct inspirations. But in terms of art, I guess I'll, I'll try and name a few. Um, and this one seems slightly cliche, but the first play that actually really, really got me into thinking about the art of playwriting was Waiting for Godot by Beckett. Um, I'm not sure how I feel about the rest of his work or him as a person, um, but um, I do love Waiting for Godot deeply. Um, it's just like really connected to how I was feeling emotionally when I saw it. Um, and it really just hit something in me. And I'm also really deeply informed by playwrights like Carol Churchill and Susan Laurie Parks. Um, Susan Laurie Parks writes a lot of theoretical work that I also really admire. And Julieta, I love that you mentioned Gabriel Garcia Marquez because A Hundred Years of Solitude is um, still like probably one of my favorite books just because of the way it explodes just the personal and historical so well. I like still cannot wrap my head around that book and I read it every once in a while to be reminded of how much I can feel from writing. Um, and that, that book also inspired me to look a lot more into magical realism and so, like, Guillermo del Toro's films and um, other filmmakers have really also inspired me. Just off that title alone, unfortunately, I am, I guess I feel a little uncultured because I, I hadn't heard of it, but it sounds really intense and I kind of want to put it on my reading list. Sounds like I probably should since both of you are inspired by it. But I just wanted to comment, Julieta, you were saying how when you were younger, there was the no distractions. There wasn't the TV, the electronics, the rain, you had to read and all that. I just want to say, I really appreciate that you share that experience because that is something that's dearly lacking today. And if anybody wants to recreate that, and that's something I shared that growing up, my family was just a little bit on the less traditional side. And so we weren't exposed to electronics and TV at a young age. So we got to experience that lack of distractions. I feel like that is very hard to find these days unless it's self-imposed. And even then, I don't know if it creates the same impact or experience that it comes from the other way. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's, it's so important. The, the, the lack of distractions is, you know, I really feel like social media and devices are kind of like the death of writing. And interestingly, you know, supposedly as a writer today, you're supposed to have a certain amount of follows. Otherwise, editors might not want to, you know, purchase your book because they want to make sure that you have a platform. And if you're on social media, you're not writing. <laughs> so, you know, it's it's a big dilemma. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to piggyback on that because I was thinking when you were talking about your process of like trying to find an agent and like as an actor, pre 
COVID, when I was looking for an agent, it was a lot of hard work about like, well, how do you describe yourself? And it has to be this certain way and it has to be this certain way. But that's another thing that came in was this social media aspect. And it was like, why? Why is that what is important if I am a talented actor for this commercial? It's not, you know what I mean? So I can feel you on that. And the uh, social media conversation is an, is an interesting one because I personally, I've had to, I don't have Instagram or Facebook or anything like that on my phone because I was just reflecting on how much I just stare at my phone. Like if I'm not doing something or, I'm, or how much, if I am doing something, I'm then pulled away from it because I have this thing in front of me. And I see it with like people that I have conversations with and I try to take that away to be more present. But at the same time, I look at these young creators on TikTok because my sister has a TikTok and then she just, she sends me videos and I'm like, perfect, curated little TikTok. I'll get one a day. But I think about their process and these these kids who are writing skits that are 30 seconds long that tell a story from beginning, middle to end that are just funny and like like that I can relate to as an adult. And it's it's an interesting and hard balance that I'm curious on how future generations will handle the technology aspect and the social media aspect. This is funny because later on, I'm going to ask y'all where you want people to find you on social media. So as we just are like, social media bad, I'm going to be like, hey guys, where can we find you? <laughs> just as a heads up. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about your work for Expand Upon. Can you tell us a little bit about your pieces for Expand Upon? Yes. <laughs> I, um, I want to preface this by saying that climate change is a, is a prompt. Um, and I have talked with Kiki and Suzanne a little bit about this, but climate change as a prompt is quite daunting in the way that it requires such an intense, like, it is everywhere and in everything it feels like. Um, in ways that are both human and non-human and I guess I'm like trailing off here so maybe I'll just move on but um which is why I really just like appreciate being like in a pair of playwrights especially with Julieta who I've like been accustomed to her work and like knowing that she was gonna be with me through this was really comforting actually but uh the play that i wrote was i guess i'm the end of my family line um and it was really driven by this central question of what it means to continue both as like a person in this moment or previous moments or future moments as a person but also like a species and also as a family and like the way that climate change forces us to think about the needs of people now but also the ways we didn't meet the needs of people in the past and are decimating the needs of the people in the future 
and that it requires all of us to expand our idea of what our family is um, if we are going to continue. And I was like grapple with that idea on a, I wouldn't say a daily basis, but like an, like it comes to mind very often. And I just I have to cite this work that was deeply inspiring to me, and it's called Slow Violence and the Environmentalism of the Poor by Rob Nixon. And it's the central sort of thought behind that work was that marginalized folks feel it, feel the effects of climate change first. And it's it's not on the level of natural disasters and it's it's not immediate. And the the pain and the destruction that's felt is not felt on like a normal human scale. And it's much and yet it's still so much more catastrophic than like a tornado. And the way that the people who are feeling it has shifted as we've moved through time and continues to just move forward and the margins are tightening and it's 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 scary um and it's you can see where we've lacked foresight and continue to and it's it's all very frightening um (laughs) yeah yes i mean oh my god daunting is right and it was a daunting process when we um were given this prompt and and it was also really hard as Brian said uh, not to I guess speaking for myself it was really hard to think about how to write this in a way that wasn't completely hopeless because we're grappling with something that is that it seems so hopeless a lot of the time so for me you know this was a very different process than uh, writing any other play that I wrote before, because normally there's no prescription on topic and there's no prescription on actors or length. And here we had all of those prescriptions. So it was very hard. Um, it was very rewarding process, but it was it was daunting at first. Um, I spent a couple of months just reading everything that I could about climate change, um, whether it was from the scientific perspective, political, social aspects of it, and I had at least 10 different story ideas of what I wanted to do. And what these stories had in common is that there was some kind of um, sort of storytelling within the story. And I think that that was probably me as a player and trying to figure out what story to tell. So that storytelling within the story ended up making it to the play that I wrote called Keepers of the River. And the way I ended up choosing the topic was that um, after you know spending a few weeks uh, scratching my head and scratching ideas off of my notebook and bringing different ideas and discarding old ones, um, I remember that I had um, a couple of years ago, I had been researching the story of Berta Cáceres, who was an environmentalist and political activist from Honduras. She was assassinated in 2016. And for a while, I was kind of um, playing with the idea of writing a play about her because I was so moved by her story and her courage. Um, I'm very drawn to people who have the courage to stand up for an idea and take it to the last consequences, even if it means risking their lives. So I ended up writing a story that is 
inspired by the story of Puerta Cáceres very loosely. I didn't want to uh, be bound to have to write her story. I also had the, the topic of climate change that I wanted to put more at the fore center. And so I wanted to have uh, those stories within the stories that I was first thinking about. So I ended up writing that story inspired by uh, Berta's story, but it takes place in a, in a fictional country. So it doesn't take place in Central America or South America. You know, it could be anywhere in Latin America. Um, but it, there are a lot of aspects of her fight. Um, you know, she was fighting against um, a multinational corporation that was trying to build a set of dams in the town where she's from. So that made it into a story. And so that's, you know, Berta in the story would be Alma, who is the, the main character of Keepers of the River. Yeah, and I just wanted to reiterate as, feel free to add on to this sort of half-formed analysis, Julieta, but I feel like I really appreciate Keepers of the River so much, especially because the scope that it takes is so vastly like the historical scope of it is so vast um and it tackles so many ideas that get exploded in this that are exemplified in this person's story and so there's this sort of explosion of historical and sort of colonial and extractive history um in this place you've made and i would say that in mine like in my play I guess I'm the end of my family line, like things are very general and sort of less specific and there's sort of like less historical context and it's sort of people talking. And so there's less of, instead of exploding inward, it sort of explodes outward. Um, so there's like a, the, the direction of the plays is different where it's like historical into the person or it's just like this person exploding like the people talking exploding into different timelines. I, I really admire, Brian, the way you're able to blow up the concept of the historical. I, I admire it and I, I find that it's something that is really hard for me to do. You know, you take the historical and you, you, know, you blow up the timeline and you have past, present and future with the specificity, but with a certain generality and universality that is really hard to do and I think that in that sense you really made justice to the topic I as I was thinking about the topic I was like that's kind of what I wanted to write <laughs> you know and and I didn't and I'm you know it's fine there's like so many ways of approaching this topic but I feel like you accomplished that and that's so commendable how you were able to make it general and at the same time specific because each of these characters have it you know their own intimate story and they're very relatable um, but you have that sense of exploded uh, historical concept that transverses time as we know it you know in our everyday experience so you've both naturally kind of covered how the process with mirror stage is different maybe for you than when you normally go to write a play but i just want to ask so the titles of these of these two particular plays I don't know if this is true they seemed like maybe they were a little bit more obvious to come up with but for when you're not commissioned by mirror stage and doing different kind of um, playwriting 
does the title usually come to you beforehand or is it something that comes after or what's that like in terms of being different than the mere stage process? Titles are actually really hard for me. <laughs> I usually really struggle with them. And I, except for a couple of exceptions, I usually come up with the title afterwards. And in the case of this play, I had several titles. Um, I think that at the beginning, the name of the play was going to be Alma's Tales or Alma's, Alma's something. It, it all had, it, I was playing with the name of the protagonist. And then, then I just, I don't know, this other title came to my mind. I, I often use my colleagues at Parley for titles and we brainstorm, um, <laughs> which is great to have that because you often have um, a more narrow-minded idea of what your play is and does than other people. At least I feel that way. So, For me, the process was a little different than how I usually go about plays. This is actually my first commission as a playwright. So it was, I have never had to respond sort of directly to a set of prompts or questions that someone else has given me. And I usually actually spend a lot of time just sitting around thinking. And I I used to do that on my bus rides when I could still commute around. Um, I really miss the bus. I really like the bus. Um, but uh, I just really love the time spent on it. Sort of, it kind of ties back to that, that idea of sort of reclaiming that just being with ourselves time. That for me, that was found on a bus. But back to the question, I find myself sort of guided by sets of ideas or themes or questions when I start writing. So I usually have at least some idea of what I want the title to be, and I sort of refine it as I go through. But I did come up with this title first because I did want to talk about or sort of probe around the idea of what it would feel like to be the end of something and like not really knowing what it means to or how to move forward. And so that's where that the title, I guess I'm the end of my family line came from. Thank you for that. And it's interesting to hear about how everyone's process is different, even like you all were talking about through your work with your playwriting group versus how you approach it individually. And so I'm curious on this whole process of expand upon. It's it's a lot. It's not we commission the show, we have our activism brunch, we're about to have our pre-show lecture. And so I'm curious on what came up for you through this experience. Were there any challenges for you as you wrote and like how did you work through those? Was there anything that surprised you in your own work or through our reading of the other person's work? I want to start with saying that with Julieta's piece, I really felt like I gained this sort of perspective that I didn't really have in the sense that I feel like I'm in a bubble of people who really sort of believe and have a certain perception or idea of climate change. Um, And I don't really come across that many people that challenge that. Um, And so for Keepers of the River, it kind of really directly 
asks the question of like, how do you tell the history of climate change? And then I sort of realized that I'm not in a bubble of people who share the same, like we wouldn't all start in the same place, like of the history of climate change. And we all don't feel it the same way. And, you know, like, and I, those are things I've known, but I don't think I've articulated it in, or would have articulated it in the same way. And so that's something that I've sort of come to and really appreciated. And also sort of responding to something that Julieta said was that I also wanted to write about hope. I didn't want it to be hopeless. And that was a tough thing. So throughout this process, I feel like I'm sort of learning about what my play is communicating and how people are feeling about the topic in general and like also interrogating myself about like my comfortability with what it means to move forward and like whether or not I have a lack of imagination for the future or like whether or not I'm sort of seizing my own sort of agency to do something about it or like am I falling into pitfalls of feeling like I don't have any I I, it's like a a never-ending spiral of questions I feel like that are intensifying um which is not a bad thing per se but it certainly doesn't resolve anything and (laughs) I don't think we'll be resolving this issue in any sort of quick time period um but I'm sure I'll be grappling with it for the rest of my life but yeah, those are certain things that have come up. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, with other expand upon topics like immigration or gun control, which are the ones that I remember in more recent uh, series, they are, I think, a little bit more, you know, even though they're also huge topics, a little bit, it seems to me, more easier to narrow down and easier to build a story around because, you know, this is we're writing plays, we're not writing a lecture on climate change. So this was hard because it's, um, it was for me, the biggest challenge was to not be didactic. And I think that Brian's play does that so well, it's so not didactic and so relatable and, and it's able to expand on the topic of climate change, as we said before, from a very universally, relatable perspective that transcends the regular timeline it's not we're not just talking about the present so for me that was the biggest challenge how do I make this um, how do I approach this topic in a way that makes people think about what we're coming up against and also doesn't seem like I'm you know I'm lecturing you on climate change and these are the things that I learned you know so yeah it was a definitely hard to evade the didacticism, which I don't think Keepers of the River is didactic, but I think it plays with the idea of, because there's a story that is being told within the story. um, So there's this playwright who's trying to do research to tell the story of Alma's struggle because he wants to write a play about Alma's struggle. And because they're talking about climate change and her struggle has to do with climate change, the characters who are Alma's co-organizers, uh, comrades, uh, who are all in hiding, 
they are trying to come up with a story about climate change. So those little skits that they come up with, those are kind of the things that I was researching. So in that way, the topic gave me this very interesting process of, okay, I'm gonna make notes of the things that I'm coming up with as I'm researching, and I'm gonna include those things in the play. And that's something like, unlike any other process of any other play that I wrote before, because even though I had a couple of commissions before, they weren't about this big thing. You know, there were different kinds of prompts that were a little bit more open-ended. Piggybacking off that, Juliette, I think you did a wonderful job incorporating what you learned. And Brian, I just want to say I love the, the hope that Scott's character represents in your work. So Julieta kind of covered this already, but I want to ask and open the floor while in this process, like Kiki told me your final scripts are due towards the end of the month. So we're coming towards the end of this very long process. You know, the performances are next month. Did you learn anything about climate change you didn't know before? I know Julieta said they did a lot of research, a lot of reading beforehand. Besides anything you've already mentioned, is there anything else you wanted to share that you learned? Um, yeah, I mean, I learned so much. I think I deepened my understanding of this debate. I deepened, I guess I deepened the understanding of how controversial um, the topic of climate change is um, because the U.S. is a country where most of our interactions are ruled by what the market is, dictates. Um, it's so easy to lose sight of the fact that the narrative around climate change is often um, shaped by the market. It's, so it's not about what's going to be sustainable for the planet. And for us humans, it's about what's going to be profitable because you know corporations have a constitutional mandate to yield profits <laughs> so for their stakeholders. So I think that um, until that conversation is shifted, um, I don't think we can solve the problem of climate change. And that was kind of what I was coming up against as I was researching. Um, you know, green capitalism is an oxymoron. It's true that we can, we can exist in a capitalist economy and slow down the, the damage, I guess, through stricter regulations. I think that's highly desirable, um, but I think we need to shift the conversation from one about, um, you know, the conversation we're having now is about production and consumption. And I think that we need the conversation that is more about a harmonious coexistence with our environment, a way of being non-exploitive, towards the environment and each other. So I think that we should not limit the conversation to our carbon footprint. And we should include the effects of war, for example, on our planet, um, you know, not just because of the impact of climate change, but because, you know, of war in, on climate change, but because we humans are part of that ecosystem and we die in wars. And so we need to talk about deforestation and, all the plastic crap that they force us to buy, you know, and I say forces because the majority of consumers do not have the power to choose what they buy or what lifestyle they live because you have to have certain things taken care of in order to make those choices. So not everyone has that choice. You know, I think that there's just so much that we need to talk about that I, as I was reading I kept thinking, why don't I see more of these in the writings, you know, in, I guess, mainstream 
articles that I see about climate change. You know, I think now we're talking, about, what is it today, March 5th, I think when we're recording this, we need to have a conversation about what it means that the Biden administration just, or any other administration for that matter, just dropped a bunch of bombs in Syria. You know, what is that doing for the environment? Why is the US even there on the first place? Because we know what the origin of these uh, wars is. You know, it has to do with oil. At least the origin of these interventions has to do with oil. So yeah, I just think that there's just a lot of topics that we need to include that are not just carbon emissions, which of course are important and need to be part of the debate, but I think that we need to include more. Yeah, I wanted to jump in and say that is interesting that you brought that up, Julieta, about the recent bombings of the Biden administration, because like one of the first ones that his administration had done, they were saying like one person who was a terrorist was killed and like nine buildings were destroyed. And I remember hearing that and thinking, what does that effect have on the earth? Like the blow, the the dropping of bombs and destruction of all these resources being like space for human beings, what is the effect on this, this place now and the displacement of any people and how that all ties in and works with how we work and operate in the world? Because now we have less space, or I'm sorry, not less space. Now we have um, these buildings that were paid for to be created that have now been destroyed so now what? Do we rebuild? Do What do these people do? Where do these people go as we continue to bomb places? And then what do we do with all of this rubble and destroyed materials? Yeah, I would say that just to sort of take green capitalism as a jumping off point, um, from Julieta, um, like, I feel like this process with Expand Upon is sort of coincided with a really activating moment for a lot of people, um, just sort of coincidentally. So, and with this administration change and everything, and I think during the panel, sort of the ethics and limitations of the Green New Deal were sort of, you know, brought up by, I think Julieta also talked a little bit about this during the panel, but, you know, like, what does it mean to try and re-envision our world within the bounds of destruction? Like, if we are held in a container that is completely built upon a sort of an ethics of destruction then like I don't know how we can move forward and so I've been thinking a lot about just sort of how when we think about this it just like we require such huge upheaval of the way we relate to people and even the earth and where we get things and I have so much work to do myself and like like most of the things that I consume, I'm very detached from. And obviously that's my individual understanding of that is like, that will not like change the system, but it's sort of like a symptom of it that I'm so detached from the earth and the land. Um, and 
during this process, I also had the deep pleasure and honor of reading Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer, um, which is a book I would recommend for everybody. Um, but it talks about the relationship between humans and plants and how like ecosystems and plant systems are actually have been mutually in mutually beneficial relationships with humans. And it hasn't always been extractive and destruction and destructive, I should say. Um, and like, where, how do we get back to that? Is like, like, I just, I spend a lot of time thinking about what it would, like what it takes to get back to that. And um, I, it's gonna take a lot, <laughs> I think. Those points being mentioned here now, and then also, you know, watching and partaking in the activism brunch, I know I personally, my eyes were open to just how interwoven and interconnected everything we have done and are doing, and how that all plays a part in climate change in everything. It's when all these other points came through, I was like, oh my gosh, they're all connected. This is crazy. How do we get out of here? And so Brian, when you say it's going to take a lot, this huge big thing, it's yeah, it's like our foundation is such that how do we get away from that if we want to reverse our ethics of destruction? That was a really good point. I think I just want to take a moment to like breathe and with all of you and this heaviness and say that like I want to believe and do believe very deeply that this work is possible and because if I don't then like what's the point and especially just like in inter sort of like our in, own interpersonal relationships and what we can cultivate in our communities I think are tangible things that are can change things and change the world hopefully <laughs> i know i sort of keep contradicting myself but i i like have deep hope in like really do believe in the power of like communities and pockets and what it means to exemplify the change we want and like take the time to vision take the time to envision it and sort of like act upon that I'll also like I'm an individual who works on that or has to work on that all the time. I like fail and misstep or whatever all the time and sort of figuring out just like one step at a time as a human and with other people has kept me going. Yeah, I think I was thinking, Brian, as, as you were saying that we need to remain hopeful because otherwise what's the point? You know, there's that phrase about being a pessimist of the intellect and a, an optimist of, of the heart. I can't remember if heart is the word, but you know we have to remain hopeful. And I think, um, I love that you brought up Braiding Sweetgrass because it is such a hopeful book that should pretty much be required reading for high school or you know anyone really thinking about the future of our planet. And sometimes, you know, all it takes is to just go out to nature and just look at look around you and there's just so much hope in nature and the, the, the resilience of nature um, so I think that we need to hold on to, uh, to that while we continue to educate ourselves and, um, and be active in our communities I wanted to just quickly 
also add, you reminded me of sort of the power of storytelling. And I want to give you that platform to talk about that as well. But that I heard this recent quote by Ross Gay on podcast Between the Covers, which I love, um, but that poetry is a way to stop time as we know it or feel it. And I feel that for art, it's art in general is just like a way to stop time as we know it or experience it to examine something or sort of feel together. And that is, I have hope for that power as well. And sort of, I don't want to constantly feel like I'm running out of time. And it's such an overwhelming feeling. And so to like sort of capture something to do with people in communities was very important to me. What I wanted to share, I had just come across this story by um, a Spanish philosopher. His name is Carlos Fernandez Lidia, who talks about how storytelling happens. And, you know, I think it's interesting because we often talk about storytelling as, as a preservation tool because we get to preserve the history of our family, our country, and so on. But we don't always talk about the process of storytelling and how it's not just telling any story in any way. You know, there's an, a process of alteration of the oral story that happens as it's being remembered and told. And so he talks about, for example, uh, let's say that you have the story of uh, someone who caught a fish, let's call him Juan. And so Juan caught this fish that is 10 centimeters long, very small, shorter than a palm of a hand. So if you're going to go tell that story, you're not really going to say that it's 10 centimeters because that's really small. And when you when you tell the story, you're going to use both hands. So you're going to put one hand next to the other. So it's probably going to be more like half a meter, um, you know, because who wants to hear a story about a fish that small, right? So you're not in the moment when Juan catches the fish, but you want to experience the emotion that one felt in that moment so you need to exaggerate you know and stories exaggerate and embellish what happened uh, so it's a little bit like like a broken telephone or like neighbors gossiping about something you know the story gets altered the more you you tell it so with the story of this fish let's say that Juan goes and conveys this to his mother who later conveys it to her neighbors. And, you know, all of a sudden the fish is getting bigger, you know, and it's like all of a sudden the, the fish became a shark. Anyway, so he goes on and explains about how eventually that shark became a whale and that became the myth of Jonah and the whale, you know, because all of a sudden it wasn't just Juan who caught the fish, it was the whale who ate Juan and Juan spent a bunch of time inside the whale. You know, so he talks about how that's how a myth is, is built and, you know, and people remember it because we have all this embellishment and exaggeration. So I think, you know, I thought it was just really cool how, how that process of, you know, in a way, maybe storytellers are kind of like the gossiping neighbors who are altering the story and passing it along to the next person. <laughs> Well, that is perfect. We were just going to say, like, those are all of our questions. I did have one more where I wanted you to let the listeners know, like, what other projects are you working on outside of this? Do you have anything coming up 
Do you have a website or somewhere you would like people to find out more information about you and your work? I do have a Instagram. <laughs> so I think that would just be the easiest way to keep up with me because I do have a website, but it's not really a way to contact me really. And that is meowy meow. And so that's two meows with a Y in the middle. And that's where you can find me. Yeah, I also have an Instagram and you can find me there if you want to contact me directly. It's J-U-L-I-V-I-T-U. So that's Huli Vitu, half of my first name, half of my last name. And I also have a website that I try to update uh, where you can find, you can actually find linked some of my stories, uh, short stories that were published. So you can go there to read and you can also find some news that I try to post from time to time. And that's my name, Julieta Vitulo. So that's J-U-L-I-E-T-A-V-I-T-U-L-L-O.com. I also wanted to say that you could find information about us and our work also at Parley's website, which is parleyproductions.com. Yeah, and to that, I would also like to add that you can also find more at Ese Teatro's website, which is esteatro.org. I'm a part of Ese Teatro, so you can also find out about us there. It's uh, six or seven of us Latinas who are part of that theater company. Great. Thank you both so much. And I will be sure to put these in the show notes so that if people are on online, they'll be able to like click on it and easily find you and find all the different things you're doing. All right, everyone. Well, that is it. I just want to offer up space. Is there anything else that you wanted to touch on that we didn't get to? Anything last minute you wanted to say to listeners before we let you go? I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed this. I wish we were all together in the same room so that we didn't have to raise hands <laughs> to talk and we could interrupt each other and like we could hear the laughter and the, you know, the, the agreeing with each other as we were talking. But thank you so much for this. This was a wonderful conversation. Yeah, thank you for this time to just sort of deep dive on this. It's really nice to take the time because it is pretty overwhelming um and so it's really it was a blessing really and for anybody listening i hope this gave you more joy than dread and if not i hope you look at the sky and find some joy in that um because <laughs> it gives me some joy that was so great I just think that went so well and it makes me really happy. That went surprisingly well for someone's like internet and power dropping out all of a sudden and just calling back on dad's phone to be like, okay, I'm here. We're going to do this. Thank you, Julia, to dad. <laughs> I'm right. right. That's a lifesaver. Um, and the fact that we're, you know, interviewing people in Argentina and in Seattle and I'm here. It's yeah. just, I thought that went really well. So call to action. Yes. Here we go, calling you all to action. In support of Women's Day and Month, I would like to highlight the National Abortion and Reproductive Rights Action League Pro-Choice Washington. 
They are the leading grassroots pro-choice advocacy organization in Washington state, and they're hosting an online event designed to help sustain activists across the state. They're going to do that by linking you to self-care products and services from incredible local women and BIPOC-led self-care businesses. Their Self-Care Saturday event opens March 26th at 12 p.m. and will culminate with a live moment of gratitude on April 10th at 10.30 a.m. And I will put the link in the show notes for everyone, but as a heads up, you can find them at prochoicewashington.org to find out more about this organization. However, if you would like some immediate self-care in the form of food or drink, there are a whole host of women-owned restaurants in and around the Seattle area. I actually have a couple personal favorites that lean towards the breakfast cuisine. If you are a fan of that, I highly recommend the Fat Hen, which is in Ballard. They're just doing pickup orders, but their food is super homey, super yummy. It's American and Italian inspired uh, breakfast and lunch food. Another personal favorite is Wild Mountain Cafe. I used to live on 86 in Aurora. I used to live on 86 in Aurora. And so my former roommates introduced me to this place. They're in Crown Hill. The atmosphere is super cool. It's like a renovated cottage. So you walk in, you're like in somebody's house, basically. Uh, but they're strictly a brunch place, but just down to earth, good food. They've got brunch, cocktails, etc. The Strangers website provided a full list of women-owned restaurants, and we will link that in the show notes as well, so you can get your grub I want to throw another restaurant in there, because I love food. So there is a local POC women-run business organization. I don't know what to call them, because it's a whole thing. Okay, so it's called Community Kitchen, and it started with a cook, and she goes by That Brown Girl Cooks, and they're uh, amazing, and I've eaten many of their hummus. They make this great black eyed pea hummus. But anyway, that's a whole nother story. But they came up with this Seattle Community Kitchen Collective. And the whole idea is that, you know, people have to eat. So they offer free and discounted foods, as well as like a menu of other items that you can purchase at full price. But it's just a great opportunity to eat some delicious food, support another BIPOC women led organization. And I will put that in the show notes as well getting hungry over here it's almost don't even get me started it was like three o'clock and I looked I was like I didn't even eat any lunch today I forgot (laughs) what (laughs) my parents have a strict eating dinner time of 6 p.m here oh no we better hurry I don't want you to get in trouble (laughs) wait what's for dinner well okay that we've been switching off you know my mom will cook one night, my dad will cook one night, I'll cook one night, and then usually there's leftovers. I think tonight's kind of like a scrounge survival mode, like just look in the fridge and see what there is. <laughs> yes. My dad likes to call it clean out the box yes. night. <laughs> yes. Anyway, um, next up for Mirror Stage, or rather this month, by the time you'll be listening to this listeners, we will already have hosted our pre-show lecture. It will have been live streamed to YouTube for free. That lecture is being presented by a Dr. Amy Snover. She's the director of the Climate Impacts Group and the university director of the Northwest Climate Adaption Science Center. We will have a link to that video in our show notes. I highly recommend checking it out. 
as we are recording right now, we don't know what will be spoken about, but it is within the theme of our expand upon, which is climate change. And I think it'll be a great precursor to our performances in April. Speaking of which, those will be a virtual stage reading of the two new plays that Mirror Stage commissioned. And those dates are, we will open April 10th, I believe it's an 8 p.m. Pacific Standard Time performance, a matinee on the 11th, and then one more weekend of shows on the 17th and the 18th. So please join us for that. Tickets are available for purchase via our website. And with that, next up for our podcast is another edition of our South Seattle Stories. And this time around, we will be interviewing two members of the South Seattle community, Faduma and Susan. And they are with an organization called Homesite, but specifically they've developed this programming called Othello Talks. So we will be talking with them about their process of creating this program and discussing with them how this has an effect on the South Seattle neighborhood. Yeah, it should be a good one. That will be released the third Monday in April. So tune in with us then. Thank you everyone for listening. This podcast is available on Breaker, Google Podcasts, Overcast, Pocket Casts, Radio Public, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. So if you are finding us on any of those platforms, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe if possible. If you have anything you want to ask me or you want me to ask our guests in future episodes, please be sure to send them in. You can email me all questions or comments to kikid at mirstage.org. Kikid at mirstage.org is spelled Q-U-I-Q-U-I-D at M-I-R-R-O-R-S-T-A-G-E dot O-R-G. If you like what you've heard and would like to support this podcast or other Mirror Stage programming, you can donate at our website, mirrorstage.org, or text Play It Smart to 206-888-6477. We would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional land of the first people of Seattle, the Duwamish and Coast Salish people, past and present, and honor with gratitude the land itself and the Duwamish and Coast Salish tribes.